For the scripture reading this morning, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 1 of the Catechism. And we read 1 Corinthians 6 because we're going to focus this morning on the idea of our identity in Jesus Christ. And that's what the Corinthians were losing sight of. And that's what Paul exhorts them to remember. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll see that as we read through this chapter together. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, Are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, slanderers, nor extortioners, swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, But I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both both raised up the Lord... And will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, 
shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which belong to God. So far, we read God's holy word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and on the basis of many passages that we have the instruction of Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism found on page 3 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 1. And if you actually look at the proof text at the, in the margin at the side, you'll see that the very first proof text is from 1 Corinthians 6. What is thy only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient, must serve, must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, mayest live and die happily? Three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Although this is our first time going through this question and answer together, it's a very familiar question. We've all heard it before. In fact, many of us have memorized this answer that the Catechism gives. In fact, The Heidelberg Catechism students this year will hopefully have this answer seared into their brains by the end of the year, because I'm going to require them to answer this question every week, they take turns, until they know it. And by the way, parents, you can help with that. See whether or not your eighth grader or your ninth grader has this answer, question and answer one, memorized yet. What is thy only comfort in life and death? It's an interesting question, and it's an interesting way to begin the catechism for a few reasons. First, it's interesting because the question simply assumes that we need comfort. The catechism doesn't take the time to first ask, do you need comfort? 
No, the catechism knows we need comfort. And that's true for all of us, all the time, every week again. We all need comfort. And this is part of what coming to church is for. As God says to the prophet and through the prophet, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. We all need comfort. Second, it's an interesting way to begin the catechism because this is really how the catechism is going to approach all the doctrines of grace. It's interesting because one of the main reasons for having a catechism and for having catechism preaching is so that we might have the preaching of the full counsel of God. The catechism that we're beginning this morning is a summary and an explanation of all the central truths of Scripture. And the reason we go through the catechism again and again is so that we might be well-balanced, healthy, grounded Christians who know the Scriptures, who know what it teaches. Because without catechism preaching, we probably wouldn't have many sermons on the Trinity or on the sacraments or on discipline. And there would be blind spots in our knowledge and our understanding. And so the catechism is here to help us have the Scriptures preached as a whole. And yet what's interesting is that even as we endeavor to do this through catechism preaching, what the catechism does is emphasize that none of what we're going to do here is a mere exercise in head knowledge. No, but we're looking at all these things so that we might know the gospel and so that we might enjoy and experience it as fully and as maturely as possible, so that we might live and die happily and join the comfort found in Jesus Christ. We want to hear preaching on all Scripture, because the whole of Scripture serves our comfort, even as it all serves in one way or another to communicate to us Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. And that's really, I say that's interesting that it begins this way because that's what this first question and answer is emphasizing. The whole of Scripture has to do with the gospel. Everything we're going to look at has to do with comfort, knowing our salvation. Well, this morning I'm not going to give a, a whole study of what comfort is or what the word comfort means. We, we could do that maybe next time when we go through the catechism, we can do that. This morning, what we're going to look at especially is the idea of our identity and how our comfort is found in our identity in Jesus Christ. This is a huge issue in our culture today and in the church and for our young people and young adults and for all of us. And it's something that needs to be clearly addressed in the preaching, and, and the catechism does it right here in question and answer one. We take as our theme, my comfort, my identity is in Christ. That's my comfort, my identity is in Christ. And we look at three things. First, we look at my new identity. Second, we look at my glorious freedom. And second, we look at my necessary knowledge. As I said, I want to focus this morning on that idea of identity. And that's also why we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning, because that's what the saints in the church at Corinth were losing sight of. This was part of the problem that was plaguing the church. These saints had forgotten their identity. Why were the people committing fornication? Why were they living in conflict with each other, even bringing each other before the courts? 
Why was there so much pride and division and bickering and hurt? It's because the people had forgotten their identity. As Paul writes in verse 19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is what the people were forgetting. You're not your own. They were losing sight of their identity in Christ. And when that happens, beloved, that is so, so devastating. Because the reality is, how you identify yourself impacts everything. Every facet of your life. Who am I? That's the question. That's the question of life. That's the second most important question in all the world. The first, the most important question is this, who is God? And then right along with that, the second most important question is this, who am I? And also, whose am I? This is the question that the young people and young adults are asking themselves all the time. When you are self-conscious, I think it's safe to say that one of the main reasons you are self-conscious or that I am self-conscious is because I have a concern about this very issue. Who am I? And the thought that lies so often behind our self-consciousness is this. I am perhaps what others say about me. You see, how we answer that question, who am I, impacts our whole worldview and our whole way of thinking. And really, the answer to this question determines whether my life is characterized by tragedy, misery, gloom, despair, and sin, or whether my life is characterized by joy and peace and freedom and righteousness. And I bring all of this up this morning because all of this is implied right here in this first question and answer. Notice how the catechism begins answering the question. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own. I am not my own. And that's interesting that the catechism should include that language because the catechism didn't have to include that language. You understand the catechism could have simply put it this way. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It didn't have to include that language, but it did. I am not my own. And by including this language, the catechism is implying something. The catechism is implying this, that to belong to myself and to have to answer the question, who am I, by giving the answer, I am my own, the catechism is implying that that kind of reality would be the greatest tragedy that a person can experience. When the catechism says, I am not my own, the catechism is driving at something. The catechism is saying there's something deeply, horribly, terribly tragic for a human being to belong to himself and to have to identify himself by saying, I am my own. There's something tragic in that. Because here's the thing. If a person belongs to himself, how must he identify himself? 
ultimately, this is how a person must identify himself. I am a failure. If a person does not belong to Jesus Christ, that is his identity. He is a failure. And that identity even arises in the person's own conscience so that his own conscience testifies to him or her that he is, she is a failure if he belongs to himself. Because the reality is everyone knows that there is a God. Everyone knows that God is to be feared and worshipped. And everyone knows that he and she falls short of that worship. He knows there is a God, and yet he gropes in the darkness for the knowledge of God. He has the glimmerings of natural light, so that he's left without excuse, and yet with his depraved nature, he suppresses that knowledge of God in unrighteousness. And he chooses to worship the creature rather than the creator. And all the while, his conscience testifies against himself that he, she, is a failure. Beloved, this is the reality of who man is in and of himself. Man in his fallen nature is no different than Adam when Adam was hiding himself from God in the Garden of Eden in the midst of the trees. That's exactly how man is yet today. He hides from God because he knows he's a failure. And more and more, he even tries to banish the thought of God from his own mind because he knows, his conscience knows That in the judgment of God, he is a failure. And so what happens? That becomes man's identity. Man is a failure. Or really to express what I'm getting at, man is a sinner. Man is a sinner. And the fact that people know this is demonstrated by what they do in their own lives. And what does man do in his own life? He tries to redefine his reality. And he tries to redefine his reality in order that he can set himself up as a success rather than as a failure. That's what's going on. Just think of evolution. Think of the whole philosophy of evolution. What is the philosophy of evolution? The whole philosophy of evolution is this, that man is a success story. That man is on an upward progression Even when all the evidence speaks that man is falling apart and this world is falling apart, man tries to redefine himself by saying he's a success story. Think about postmodernism, the spirit that prevails in our age along with evolutionism. What is the philosophy of postmodernism? It's this, that there is no ultimate truth. There is no ultimate standard. You can have your truth and I will have my truth And we should ask, why is that way of thinking so popular? Why does it catch on? Well, it's popular because then, if this is true, that you have your truth and I have my truth, then we all can define our own, we can all have our own definition of what success looks like. And because now I can identify myself as successful. Because I determine what truth is for me even when I know deep in my heart that I am a deeply wicked person and a failure, I am a sinner, yet I will still try to redefine my reality. Think about it. Why are our hearts so bent on earthly and material things? Why are we bent on being successful in life? 
according to the flesh. Why are we so bent on this? Because then I can define myself and identify myself as a success. So much of our culture, in a sense, everything in our culture is wrapped up in this whole issue of identity. I can't help but mention the sexual perversity of our day. We're constantly bombarded by these things. People live all kinds of wicked lifestyles and they say, this is how I identify. This is how I identify myself and you must respect my identity. This is my body and I get to do with it as I want. That's how people identify their bodies. That's exactly what the saints in Corinth were doing. My body is my own. I belong to myself. And so what you have is people in the world who are constantly trying to find themselves, reinventing themselves or re-identifying themselves. And frankly, many people are sick of being themselves. And they are lost. And many people are crippled by the fear of man, what other people think. They're constantly comparing themselves to others. And others pretend as if they don't care at all what other people think. And suicide rates and depression rates keep on going up. And the point is, everyone is looking for an identity. We all want a place to belong, a safe space. And yet all life long, what do we experience? We all experience death, weakness, and failure. And then at the end of life, there's the reality of physical death. And what does death do? Death tells us all, loud and clear, that even if we enjoyed the greatest prosperity and the greatest success in our earthly life, nevertheless, our lives are still a failure. Because death will tell you that you still need to leave all these things behind and you still can't avoid coming face to face with your maker. And we know how he's going to judge us when we're left to ourselves. In the end, there's no way of avoiding the great reality of who God is. And because there's no way of avoiding the great reality of who God is, there's no way of avoiding the great reality that in and of ourselves, we are failures. Belonging to ourselves, we are failures. And that is misery. And Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4 are going to spell out just how great that misery is. It isn't just that I failed. It's the fact that I have sinned against the most high majesty of God. I am guilty of sin. I'm deserving of the maker's wrath. I stand exposed to extreme, that is everlasting punishment of body and soul in hell. And not only am I exposed to that, but my reality is this. I'm in bondage to sin, left to myself. I'm enslaved to sin, and there is absolutely no way for me or for any other creature to deliver me. So that all that's left for me is a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour God's adversaries. And that's horrifying, beloved. If I belong to myself, that means I belong to Satan. If I belong to myself, that means I am utterly alone in my sins. There is no one who comes to my help. There is no one who cares for my soul. No one who cares for my body. I have no hope in the world. There is no peace in my life. Oh yes, there is sin aplenty. I have the freedom to sin and to be as rebellious as I want. There's even the freedom to kill myself. But there's really no freedom at all in that, is there? It's not freedom at all. 
This is what it is to belong to myself. This is what it is to find my identity in myself. It is misery and it is death. Now I bring all this up and I bring it up just this way because I want us to see that we here this morning, you and I are inclined to do this very same thing. To find our identity in ourselves. Obviously when we walk in sin, when we choose to sin, that's the very sin we are committing, right? We are identifying ourselves as belonging to ourselves. This is my life, my body, my soul. I belong to myself and I commit my sin. But the problem goes even deeper. In subtle ways, in very harmful ways, as God's children, we have this tendency to identify ourselves as belonging to ourselves. And what's the end result? The end result is that we come to this conclusion and, and we can struggle with this idea that we are failures. Think of a man, a child of God, who perhaps is an upstanding man in his congregation. He's a faithful husband to his wife. And then on a business trip, he falls into the sin of adultery. And he repents and he is sorry for his sin. He grieves over his sin. But yet for the rest of his life, this is how he identifies himself. I am an adulterer. So that his sin becomes his most dominant self-image. And his entire spiritual life loses all strength and motivation and energy. Because whenever he looks at himself, all he sees is a sinner, a failure, an adulterer. Think of a woman or any child of God who is stuck on social media all day long. And she's fallen into this trap of trying to determine her self-worth by the identity that she's created for herself on Instagram or, or whatever else it might be. So that her image on the internet becomes her most dominant way of identifying herself. And what happens when she comes face to face with the reality that well, her life doesn't appear as happy and joyful as someone else's life on social media. Well, she's a failure. That's her identity. That's where she's finding her identity, and her identity says she's a failure. Think about another man, a child of God, who's consumed in his work, and he begins to identify himself solely by the success he enjoys at work. Think of a man who is a, a perfectionist, what happens when that man encounters a setback? When he doesn't actually find the success that he was looking for and, and working so hard towards? Well, that man is going to do this. He's going to identify himself as a failure. Think about a mother in Zion who finds all her self-worth merely in who she is as a wife and a mother. She works all day to keep the house clean. She lays down her life helping her children in whatever way she can. She thinks that her, her whole time should be spent merely pleasing her husband. What happens when, when that's where she finds her identity? And then she doesn't perfectly meet the expectations of her husband when he comes home. Or when she has to go to the funeral of one of her children. What happens to her identity? Or, or maybe her children leave home and she's an empty nester, what happens to her identity? Her identity is, is lost. Or maybe she begins identifying herself as a failure. 
Maybe my child grows up and walks away from the Lord. And what do I say about myself? I am a failure. I burnt supper in the oven. I am a failure. Think of the young person who's dating. And their significant other just broke up with them and ended the relationship. If that young person has been finding his or her identity in the person he or she was dating, what's the conclusion that he or she is going to come to when that person breaks up with him or her? He or she is going to come to the conclusion, I'm a failure. And the point of saying all of this is to emphasize this reality to you. All these different ways of identifying ourselves, that's not how the child of God identifies himself or herself. If you identify yourself in these ways, if in the end this is your foundation for how you understand who you are, you are going to experience the exact same kind of misery that the unbelievers of the world are trying to escape every single day of their lives. If you identify yourself in these ways, then when your conscience rises up against you and Satan throws your sins and your failures in your face again and again, you're going to be crushed. You're going to fall into despair and gloom. You're going to start hating yourself. Hating your soul. Hating your body. If you identify yourself in these ways, then when it comes to the reality of death, you're going to approach death with fear and trembling. And if you identify yourself in these ways, then the temptation is going to be all the more stronger to just give yourself over to sin anyways. Well, because I'm just a sinner anyways. I'm a failure anyways. What's the point? We have so many ways of identifying ourselves, beloved. We identify ourselves by what we can put on our resume, our lineage or ethnicity or our last name, our marital status, how much money we have or don't have, or the... Even our Bible knowledge, our gifts and abilities. That's how the saints at Corinth were identifying themselves. In their pride and conceit. But the word of God to you this morning, beloved, is this. This is not where we find our identity. This is not how we identify ourselves. What does the catechism say? You are not your own. You are not your own, beloved. As believers, you belong to Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It means that your identity is found in who Jesus is and in who you are in Jesus. Or maybe to even put it in a more striking way, your identity is not found in what you of yourself have to say about yourself. Your identity is not in what you say about yourself. And your identity is certainly not in what others have to say about you. Your identity is in what God himself has to say about you. That's really the great reality for everyone. Our ultimate identity, our identity is ultimately found not in what we say about ourselves, but it's in what God says about us. Whether we are a believer or an unbeliever, man's true identity is determined by what God says and not by what you say or what anyone else says. And here's the thing. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then God has glorious things to say about you. God has glorious things to say about you. In Jesus Christ, you have a new identity. 
You're not a failure. In Jesus Christ, you are justified. God declares you righteous. Your sins are forgiven. They're blotted out. In Christ, God sees you as acceptable and pleasing. He takes joy in you. He takes his pleasure in you. He says, you are precious to me. You are my child. He says to you, all things are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is mine. God says, you are my friend, my companion. You are my sheep, my tender sheep. You are my beautiful bride, the apple of my eye. And God says, nothing is going to separate you from my love. And that's how we need to think about ourselves, beloved. That's what the first question and answer is putting before us right at the beginning of the whole catechism. This is our comfort. This is where we find our strength. This is where we find our hope and our peace and our rest. We belong to Jesus. I don't have to identify myself by my failures, by my regrets. I don't have to identify myself as just a failure. I identify myself by who I am in Christ. I am a believer. That is what God himself has made me to believe to be. I am a regenerated child of God. I am redeemed. In Christ, I'm an heir of God. Yes, I am a sinner. But that's not the whole story. I am a sinner saved by grace who is forgiven, who is powered by the Holy Spirit, brought into communion with God and given the hope of everlasting life. And not only am I in Christ, but one day, this is what God is doing with me right now. He is sanctifying me, glorifying me, and one day, God will make me to appear even as Jesus Christ, changed like unto the glory of our own Savior, Jesus Christ. This is my identity. My identity is not just that I'm a construction worker, or or that I'm a housewife, or that I'm fat, or that I'm handicapped, or that I'm a loser. No, I am an elect, regenerated, uh, redeemed, regenerated child of God. I am the temple of God. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. My soul is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I have been purchased not just by gold and silver. I have been purchased by the very shed blood of God come in the flesh. I am precious in his eyes who loved me and laid down his life for me. I don't derive my identity from what I say about myself. I derive my identity from what God says about me. That's the great reality in my life. What God says about me. And this is something we need to be reminded of over and over again. This is something we need to be teaching our children from their youngest years over and over again. This is your identity. You are the child of God. God loves you. In a day and age in which we live, where everyone's looking for an identity and people are lost, we need to hammer this home. Remember who you are in Christ. You're not your own. And that means living a life of holiness. But, but that comes first out of knowing I'm not a failure. I'm not left to myself. I've been delivered. I'm saved. I'm the precious child of God. I belong to Jesus Christ. 
That's my new identity. I've been made a new creation. Well, with that new identity, then comes a a new freedom, a glorious freedom. And we can mention a few things here. First, knowing who we are in Christ, we have freedom from the crushing debt of sin. Belonging to Jesus Christ means this, he's fully satisfied for all my sins. He's my faithful Savior. He's paid off all my debts. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6, we've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of God, my maker, come in the flesh 2,000 years ago. He shed his blood. Not just shedding blood, but the meaning is he paid the wages for my sin which required the shedding of blood. It required death, and he bore that death for me. I'm freed from the crushing debt of sin. Second, knowing who we are in Christ, we have freedom from the power of the devil. As the catechism catechism says, Jesus has delivered me from all the power of the devil. Not only did he take away the guilt of my sin, but he also comes down to me, and by his Holy Spirit, he breaks the chains that held me in bondage to sin. He, he pries open the bars of sin that held me captive and He sets me free to live unto Him. He gives me His own eternal life. He raises me from spiritual death and He sets me free to live unto Him. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, this is verses 9 and 10. Neither fornicators, neither, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You've been set free from that life of serving sin. That life was miserable. That life was a waste. Now you have the glorious freedom of living the way you were originally created to live, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. You have freedom from the power of the devil. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That's the second thing. Third, knowing who we are in Christ, we also have freedom from fear. What does the catechism say next? And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. That's freedom, beloved. That's freedom from fear. Freedom from doubt. Freedom from having to rely on my own arm of strength. Sometimes we forget we have that freedom, don't we? We get so consumed by worry and fear. We worry about tomorrow. We worry about this sickness. Maybe we worry about what death will be like. But why does that happen? Why do we worry? It's because we're forgetting our identity in Jesus Christ. We forget that we belong to Him. And forgetting that, we become anxious. We, we look around frantically for help, for deliverance. And we're looking around in all these different directions, forgetting to look to the Lord. Because we forget who He is as our God and Savior. But but knowing who I am in Jesus, remembering that, I have freedom from fear. 
In fact, in all my distresses, I am even more than a conqueror. Because as the catechism says, all things must serve my salvation. Even death itself has been transformed into a passageway to glory. I don't have to fear, and I ought not to fear, to honor God. I need to put that fear away and and trust Him. Fourth, knowing who we are in Christ, not only do we have freedom from all the power of the devil, but we have freedom to live unto God in, in all good works. As the catechism goes on to say, and therefore by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. That's freedom. That's ultimately what Christian liberty is all about. Christian liberty is not an excuse for me to do what I want. Christian liberty is the freedom to obey God and His Word in all that we do. So that even when it comes to matters that the Bible does not specifically address, I can use my Christian liberty my sanctified wisdom to choose the path that I think is most glorifying to God and does the most good to my neighbor. I have that freedom in Christ. And that leads us to the next thing. Knowing who we are in Christ, we have the freedom to live in love with each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Again, you go back to the saints in the church at Corinth. That's what was lacking, wasn't it? Where's the love? That's the more excellent way. Everything else is sounding brass and clanging cymbals. In this chapter we read, they were even suing each other in a court of law. This peace and love for each other was lacking. And it was lacking because the people were finding their identity in themselves and not in who they were in Jesus. Because if they were finding their identity in Jesus, they would have understood we're all members of one body. And their whole attitude would have changed. I have the freedom to esteem my brother and sister better than myself. And I have the freedom to truly give myself. Because I already have all things in Christ Jesus. I don't need to strive. I don't need to be first. I already have all things in Christ. And I have the freedom to truly serve Jesus from the heart. And that means serving my brother and sister rather than trying to have the preeminence. Belonging to Jesus, we have the freedom to pray. Belonging to Jesus, we have the freedom to hope. Belonging to Jesus, we have the freedom to live unto God in all good works. Belonging to Jesus, we have the freedom to rest. Just take the time and rest in the love of God. Now we look at all of this and we say, What a place to start, isn't it, beloved? Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1. With full force, the catechism tells us right away, this is who you are in Christ, and this is what you have in Christ. In the midst of all the sorrows and distresses of life, in the midst of all the struggles and burdens of life, in the face of your sins, your actual sins, your sinful nature, your original sin in Adam, this is what you need to know. And as we study, this is what we will grow in our knowledge of. How we belong to Jesus. That's my only comfort. And that's, the all, that's all the comfort I need. Without this, I have no comfort. Having this, 
I don't need anything else. This is my only comfort in life and death. Well, having given us that beautiful description of what our comfort is, the catechism stops now for a brief moment and asks the question, how do you enjoy this comfort? And we need to understand the catechism is not saying, how do you, how do you get this comfort? It, it's, it's asking us as Christians, how do you enjoy this comfort? How do you actually experience this comfort? The catechism asks, what do you need to know in order to enjoy this comfort and all its benefits? And the answer is this, three things. First, we need to see and appreciate just how great our sin and misery is. Because when you see that, then, then you're not deceived by a false comfort of trusting in yourself even a little bit. Because that comfort will fail, and then you won't enjoy that, com- that comfort that is yours in Christ. We need to know clearly and fully how great our sin and misery is. Second, we need to know how we are to be delivered, how we, how we may be delivered, how we have been delivered from that sin and misery through Jesus Christ. And third, we need to know how we are to show God our thankfulness for such deliverance. And that's just what we finished doing in the last 20 or so Lord's Days. This is what a Christian is. He's one who is sorry for his sin. He is one who looks to Christ alone as his Savior. And he is one who is endeavoring to show his thankfulness in a life of holiness and good works. And the more we know these things and the deeper we know these things, the more we will understand and appreciate and enjoy that perfect comfort that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're going to go through the catechism again and go in this order. So that more and more the scriptures might be open to us and explained fully so that our minds and hearts might be shaped by God's word and by this reality of who we are in Jesus Christ so that we know our identity in Christ and we know the glorious freedom that is ours in Christ. May the Lord bless us in our studies as we take up another round through the catechism, working through the scriptures, seeing the comfort that is ours in Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for the scriptures. We thank Thee for a true and living faith and for Thy Spirit so that we know what these scriptures are about. And we not only hold for truth all that thou hast revealed to us, but we do have the confidence, the assured confidence, that what it reveals is for us. The good news in Christ is for us. Lord, cause us to know our identity in Christ more and more, that it might practically shape how we live and think, and that we might live in joy and in holiness to the glory and honor of thy awesome name. In Jesus' name we pray, because we are in him. Hear us for his sake. Amen.